John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. As we uh, get ready to dive into John once again, uh, would you pray with me and ask for the Lord's blessing? Heavenly Father, we do indeed come before you with great joy, Lord, with gladness, realizing that the light of light has descended out of pure and holy love and grace into our darkness. And, uh, Lord, we come before you gladly as those who have been redeemed out of that darkness, Lord, brought out of our sin, brought out of the death that we deserved and were living in. Lord, you have raised us up out of the miry pit and you have exalted us to a station that is high above us. You have planted our feet in a broad plain and given us firmness under our feet, Lord, to dwell in the grace of the gospel and to live with you in that realm of grace granted us in Christ. Father, I pray that this morning our hearts would be encouraged in the grace of the gospel. God, I pray for those who may be among us that do not know you. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you and yet may be able to hear the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we, there are no accidents. There are no happenstances in your providence. Lord, everything is ordered by your good and sovereign hand and the good purpose that you have ordained. And so I pray, Father, you would let your word have its effect. Let the power of the Holy Spirit come into our lives and hearts. Bring us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who are united to your Son, Father, I pray that you would encourage us all the more in the fullness of grace and blessing that is ours in him. Lord, bless your word to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We can suffer with a little bit of extra noise in here. If it gets too loud, I'll just raise my voice. So. We've, uh, we've been walking through the prologue of the Gospel of John for a number of weeks now. And today we are looking at uh, really the final verses of the prologue. We're going to make it all the way through verse 18 today. And then next week we'll come back to one thought in verses 14 and 18 to look at Christ as the only begotten. As I said last week, the main thought of this section is contained in that opening statement of verse 14, that the Word became flesh. That's really the statement that's supposed to grip our attention and grip our hearts. That this Word who was with God in the beginning and who was God in the beginning and who created all things and who is the source of all life and light for men, this One became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? And that's one of those results that came about from this great event 
As I mentioned last week, the rest of this passage can basically be summarized under two headings, which are the results of this great event of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. One of them being that He dwelt among us, as I said, and then the other being that we beheld His glory. Last week we looked at the word dwelling or tabernacling among us. We saw that the language that's used here makes clear that what took place in the incarnation of the Son of God is to be understood as the fulfillment of what was pictured and foreshadowed in the tabernacle under the Old Covenant. The tabernacle under the Old Covenant is where God dwelt among His people, and it's where His people could come to draw near to God. Well, now, under the New Covenant, we have the fulfillment of what was pictured in the Old Covenant tabernacle in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is where God dwells among men, and Jesus is where men must come if they would draw near to God. Now, that's quite a claim to say that Jesus is God in the flesh walking among us. Any rational person would ask in response to that, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that Jesus truly is God tabernacling among us? Was it just because he said he was God among us? Was it simply because his followers were deluded and told everyone that it was God among us? John says in verse 14, no. We know that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh tabernacling among us because we saw his glory. Just as God made his presence known among Israel by manifesting his glory in the tabernacle. Remember that in Exodus 40. You read from verse 34 through 38. You see a fuller picture of that. But you see in verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle after it was dedicated. And that was supposed to signify that God had now taken up residence among his people in that tabernacle. Well, in the same way that God's presence was made known among Israel by the manifestation of his glory in the tabernacle, in the same way, when God was tabernacling among us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, he made his presence known to us by manifesting his glory among us. And John says here, we saw his glory. We beheld it. Now, in this verse, in verse 14 and through the rest of the passage, John really describes what he saw when he says, I saw his glory, we saw his glory, he describes what he saw in two ways. And this is going to serve as the outline for the rest of the message this morning. First of all, he saw the glory of the word made flesh as the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And then secondly, it was a glory full of grace and truth. That is the glory that they beheld when the Word became flesh. Now you notice in verse 14, John says, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now what exactly does that phrase, only begotten, mean? Does anyone want to stand up and let us know? There are a couple of you I'm pretty confident could tell me. No? What exactly does that phrase mean? And maybe something that would hit on all of us, depending on which translation of the scriptures you have in your hand, how should the word here in Greek be translated? 
If you have a King James or a New King James, or if you have a New American Standard or a Legacy Standard Bible, which I highly recommend, uh, I'll not get on that soapbox right now. If you have one of those translations, those translations translate this word, monogenes, in Greek as only begotten. If you have an ESV or an NIV or an NLT, a New Living Translation, you'll find that those translations, or even that paraphrase, translates it as only unique son, or one and only son, or only son. Well, which one is it? How should we translate that word? Well, I will tell you right now that I'm not going to answer that question today. There's a large discussion and a, and a large debate about that, and sifting through all of that requires more time than what we have here this morning. And so, but it is important enough that next week we're going to come back and we're going to devote an entire sermon to discussing what John means when he calls Jesus the monogenes, paratutheu, or however it is from the Father. When he calls him the monogenes, what does he mean? We'll come back to that next week. For now, it's enough for us to understand that no matter how we translate this word, this term is being used here in John 1.14 to describe the kind of glory that John and others saw when they beheld Jesus Christ. It was the kind of glory that can only come from one who is the only begotten, or one who is the only unique Son from the Father. In other words, it was the kind of glory that can only belong to one who shares in the same divine nature as the Father. That's why Jesus is called the Son, by the way. It's signaling to us that He is one who uniquely shares in the nature of the Father in a way that no one else among us does. He is the Son of God, only shared by one other person, and that be the Holy Spirit. So what this word is trying to communicate to us is the kind of glory that John and others saw when they looked at Jesus Christ. Throughout his life and his earthly ministry, Jesus manifested a unique kind of glory that proved him to be God in the flesh walking among us. We might think of the glory revealed at his baptism. When Jesus was baptized, and Matthew 3.17 says that the Father declared over Jesus, you are my son, you are my beloved. I am well pleased with you. Now, that's definitely signaling to us that Jesus very uniquely has a glory that belongs to the only begotten Son of the Father. Who else has the Father ever declared from heaven, you are my Son, I am well pleased with you? No one. In fact, I like the language of Mark. It says, when that happened, the heavens were ripped open, and the Spirit of God was descending, and the voice from heaven came saying, you are my beloved Son, I am well pleased with you. There's a lot of force in that communication from the Father. We could point to that and say, well, that was a manifestation of his glory. Or we could point to his transfiguration, Luke 9, 32, where not only we find the Father's pronouncement over again, the Father's pronouncement of the sonship of Jesus Christ, 
But also, in this moment of history, we find the Son pulling back the veil of His humility and allowing His glory to shine out before the eyes of His disciples, including John. So is that what John is referring to when he says, we beheld His glory? We could also point to many miracles that Jesus performed as possibly what John is referring to when he says, we beheld His glory. Just like John 2.11 says, through the signs which Jesus performed, like the changing of water into wine, Jesus was manifesting his glory, and his disciples who saw it believed in him. You could extend this to his healing of the sick. You could extend this to his giving sight to the blind. You could extend this to raising the dead or commanding demons to depart from those in whom they were dwelling. The glory revealed in all of this really is captured in the words of Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came to Jesus as one who yet did not see the fullness of glory in Christ, still recognized enough of his glory through the signs which he was doing to say, no man could do the things you're doing unless God were with him. Jesus himself says the same thing in John 10. When he is defending his claim to be the Son of God, he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me when I say that I am the Son of God. But if I do do the works of my Father, though you don't believe me, believe in the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. See, the works that Jesus did were meant to reveal to us the divine union that Jesus the Son shares with the Father. In fact, we find in the Gospel of John that even the way Jesus spoke made very clear to everyone that the one speaking was more than a mere man. The officers of the temple whom the Pharisees sent to arrest Jesus, when they returned to the temple without Jesus in custody, they asked him, what are you doing? Why didn't you bring him? And these officers of the temple said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. There was a glory about Jesus that was utterly unique to his person and was proving who he is, who he was when he walked among us, that he is the only begotten from the Father. Now, John could be pointing to all of these and saying, this is where we saw the unique glory as Jesus, the only begotten from the Father. However, in John 1.14, I think we find that John, the apostle, has something else in mind when he speaks of beholding the glory of God in Christ. He says that his glory as the only begotten from the Father was seen through a fullness of grace and truth. The NASB translates this phrase as a, a full of full of grace and truth. I would change that translation and probably make it something like a fullness of grace and truth. In other words, there was a divine fullness that imposed itself and thrust itself upon this world when the Son of God appeared among us in the flesh. A fullness that manifested His glory as the only begotten from the Father. Right? This is what Colossians 2.9 says, that all the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. That is the fullness I think John's referring to when he's, when he's talking about the fullness of Christ in John 1.14. 
It's a divine fullness that came in upon this world through Jesus Christ, which John says was most clearly disclosed to our eyes through the grace and truth that was given to us in him. Amen? Amen. What do you say? <laughs> Listen to this. When Jesus Christ entered into the world, there was a fullness of divine glory that imposed itself upon this world. And John says that that glory was most clearly seen in the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth that Jesus Christ brought to us. Now that's an amazing claim. That is an amazing statement. Let me notice, let me point out a couple things here. Number one, beyond all the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus performed, right? So, so more than walking on water, more than changing water into wine, more than calming storms and commanding them to be still and, uh, still and commanding demons to cease their raging, more than the glory manifested in calling Lazarus out of the tomb, more than any of that, John says the glory of Jesus was most clearly seen through the grace that he brought to sinners and the truth that he taught us. Now imagine the glory of beholding Jesus declare with a word, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, a dead man, four days now, comes burying out of the tomb. Imagine the glory of that, the shock, the awe, the splendor, the, the, the radiance of glory that would be manifested in that event. John points to the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ and says, that is far more glorious than raising Lazarus from the dead. More than any of that, John says the glory of Jesus is seen in his grace. The glory of Jesus is seen in his truth. Don't miss that. There were many people who saw the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus did. And they were all amazed by them. Even the Pharisees. John 9, they said... A miracle has been done, and we know that God does not do things like this for sinners. There were many people who saw the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus did, and they were all amazed by them. But very few of them saw the glory of his grace through those miracles. Very few of them saw through the signs to see the glory of the truth that Jesus was teaching. It's like the Jews in John 6, 26. They saw signs. Jesus had multiplied for them bread. They had, he had filled their bellies with food. And here in John 6, 26, we find Jews who had been seeking after Jesus all night. They had even crossed over the, the Sea of Galilee in, in search for him. And Jesus looks at these Jews and he tells them, you're not seeking me because you saw signs. You're seeking me because I filled your belly. They weren't seeking Jesus because they understood the significance of the sign that he performed. 
They were seeking Jesus because He had filled their bellies and they were seeking Him because He was a miracle worker who could do other things for them. Boy, how many people today do the same thing with Jesus? They seek Jesus not because they're overwhelmed by the reality of grace, but because they have their hearts filled with the desire to know, and, or not because they have a, their hearts filled with the desire to know and worship God in truth, but because they view Jesus as the ticket to getting what they want. And they don't, they don't just think of, uh, excuse me, and don't just think of things like a Rolls Royce or a private jet or wearing an Armani suit. Right? We're not just talking about the Kenneth Copelands here and the Joyce Myers who has an $8,000 gold toilet and all, and all these other people. We're not talking about them. I'm talking about those Christians who seek Christ simply so that they can have a comfortable, easygoing life in this world and hopefully enjoy something in the life that's to come. For them, Jesus is simply their get-out-of-hell-free card. But they're not driven. And you got to listen to this. Because this is a warning that we all need to take to heart. Because we can all fall into this trap. Every single one of us can seek Christ, not for the glory of His grace or the glory of His truth, but for what He can give us. For many people, they seek Christ for His hands and not His face. Many people seek Christ for His stuff and for what He can offer them, but they don't seek Him merely for who He is. They're driven in life to seek Him. and to, They're not driven in life to seek Him and to know Him more fully because their hearts have been exposed to His glory and they've got to have more. They seek Him because He's something that can give them what they want. He's a servant for their lust and desires. That's why James says, you ask and you do not have because you ask with wrong motives. They seek his hands and not his face. They seek his stuff and what he offers. They don't seek him merely for the sake of seeking him. They're not consumed Please hear me. They're not consumed by a hunger and a thirst to know Him that was birthed within them by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and those who thirst after righteousness. Where is our righteousness found? It's found in Christ. And Jesus says true believers, those who are truly blessed in the knowledge of God, are those who have within them a hunger and a thirst and a yearning and a holy longing for righteousness. They long for Christ. They long to have Him. As Paul says in Philippians 3, they long to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection. And they press on towards that goal, forgetting everything that's behind them and laboring forward to lay hold of Christ, that for which they were laid hold of. If you've truly been laid hold of Christ, then Christ will be the end and the goal and the ambition of your entire life. 
And if Christ is just a cherry on top of what you call a blessed life, then you have not yet come to know him. The world knows nothing of this kind of glimpse of glory in the Lord Jesus. But John says, that is where the glory of Jesus was most clearly seen. In the grace and the truth that he brought to us. My friend, I wonder, can you and I say the same thing with John here and now this morning? John says, oh, we saw his glory. It was a, it was a glory of fullness of grace and truth. Can you say amen, John? By the grace of God, I see it too. I wonder. So number one thing to notice from that, beyond all the signs and the wonders and miracles that Jesus performed, more than any of that, John says that the glory of Jesus was most clearly seen through the grace that he brought to sinners and the truth that he taught us. Secondly, notice that John 1.14 says, Christ demonstrated his glory by bringing to us not just grace and truth, but by bringing to us a fullness of grace and truth. In other words, the grace and the truth that came through Jesus Christ was not like the shadows and the types of grace and truth revealed in the Old Testament. The grace and truth given to us in Jesus Christ was not like the grace and the truth that God revealed to our fathers through the prophets, which were given in many portions and in many ways. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. But the grace and the truth of God that was brought and revealed to us in Jesus Christ was a grace and truth marked by fullness. Fullness. Now, what does it mean that Jesus brought to us a fullness of truth. I think that's best explained by John 1.18. I think this is what John has in mind when he speaks about Jesus bringing to us a fullness of truth. What is a fullness of truth? It's not merely Jesus telling us all that is right and all that is wrong. It's not merely Jesus telling us the truth about ourselves and our fallen condition. It's not merely Jesus telling us the truth of the day of judgment when God will vindicate his righteousness and holiness against every sinner that does not perfectly conform to his glory. It's not merely the truth that Jesus made known to us. As it says in John 1.18, the fullness of truth made known to us in Jesus is the fullness of truth about God. The person and the work and the glory, and the purpose, and the plan of God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. I love the word here for explained Him. You know what that word is? Somebody call it out. It's the word from which we get the English word exegete. There you go. Say it again. Exegesito, exegesita, actually. Yeah, yeah. Short O there. Erasmian pronunciation. Anyway, it's the word from which we get our English word exegete or exegesis. We believe in 
uh, exegetical, expository, doctrinal preaching at this church. That means that we believe in walking through the scriptures line upon line, verse upon verse, thought upon thought, doctrine upon doctrine, and explaining it carefully as we walk through whole books of the Bible. We believe that's the best way that God's people will be fully equipped with the whole counsel of God's word. We are explaining, we are exegeting the scriptures and bringing out of the scriptures the message that is clearly there within the scriptures. And we are using that as the means. We believe that that is the means whereby God grows his people. Well, the same thing that we do in preaching at this church is what Jesus Christ, God the Son, did in his life and ministry. He was exegeting something. He was explaining something. He was laying open for everyone to see that which was hidden before. That's why Paul calls him the mystery of God, the one in whom all the wisdom of God dwells, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When Jesus Christ manifested among us, he was exegeting God to us. Laying open the hidden God, the hidden God that no man has ever seen before, laying him open so that we could all see that God by looking at Jesus. Isn't that glorious? What is the greatest blessing that Jesus brought to this world? It was an explanation, a true and a full explanation of who God is. As the only begotten God in the flesh, Jesus entered into our darkness to explain God to us with a fullness. I remember, parentheses, I remember when the Lord saved me. If I could describe what happened at the very first moment that the Lord awakened me and brought me to salvation, it was the Lord awakening me to see the truth about God. I've said this before, I'm going to say it many more times again. At that moment, Jesus Christ was no longer the tooth fairy to me. He was no longer Santa Claus and some far off, distant, removed person that I hope is real, I'm thinking is real, and I'm trying to convince myself he's real because I've got a long eternity ahead of me, and boy, I sure hope that I got it right. No, that is not what happened when the Lord awakened me to salvation. It was the Spirit of God bringing the fullness of what Christ has made known about God and pouring it into my heart and awakening me to the truth. This is what Jesus came into this world to do. To explain to us the fullness of God. And in explaining to us the fullness of God, we behold His glory. Jesus came explaining truths that no one in all humanity had ever discerned or been able to know because no man has ever been able to know God. Not in this way. To see him, or in Matthew 11, to know him as he knows us. Jesus says, the Father knows me and I know the Father in the same way. He came declaring to us truths that the Old Testament prophets only spoke of in part. And truths that even angels themselves were longing to look into. Truths that they themselves did not understand. Truths that the only begotten God existing eternally in the bosom of the Father was able to explain to us. 
to, to exist in his bosom. That's just speaking of the great intimacy that the Son has with the Father. You don't get closer to the Father in fellowship and communion than that. Right? He's in his bosom. He's wrapped up. He's, he's enveloped within God the Father. Yes, Jesus was telling us the truth about the Father's perfections, about His pure holiness and uncompromising righteousness. He told us the truth about the day of God's vindication against sin and evil on the day of judgment. But also, you have to understand, far more gloriously, Jesus was explaining to us the truth about the Father's goodness and about the Father's mercy and about the Father's compassion towards sinners. Truths that had never been able to be discerned by man before. Yes, God could tell us He's gracious towards sinners, but we never saw exactly what that meant until the Son of God came to this world. We can grasp the concept of grace, but we don't actually get it until we see the person stepping down out of glory to make us know the fullness of God's grace. Jesus came explaining to us the truths of the Father's goodness and mercy and compassion towards sinners. The truth about the depths of His deep, deep love for the world. A love so great that He would give, He would freely give His only begotten Son for the sake of sinners coming to have life in Him. Hanging Him upon a tree, right? The way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man was lifted up on the tree. So that every sin-struck sinner in this world who will turn from sin and cast his or her eyes upon the Son would find holy healing for their souls through His sufferings. Jesus declared these truths to us. Now there are many who hear these truths proclaimed maybe have known them from childhood, but how few there are who actually experience the glory of what Jesus Christ taught. Even in Jesus' day, there, are many, there were many who heard and listened to His teachings, but there were very, very few who actually felt the power and the glory of His teachings come upon their souls. Jesus described that power to us in John 8, 31 and 32. And you've got to grasp this if you're going to understand what Christianity is all about. It, this is not a mere bare uh, mental ascent that comes upon a disciple. This is an experiential moment in the life of a disciple when the word and the truth of Jesus Christ brings freedom to them. Jesus says, if you are my disciple, then the words that I'm teaching you, you will know the truth of them and the truth will set you free. Boy, how few there were then and how few there are now who know the power of the truth that Jesus is talking about right there. Jesus is laying this out right there as the difference between those who have true faith in him and those who do not. And he describes it as the effect that his teaching has had upon them. And it's the same today. Jesus says, if my words abide in you, you are truly my disciples. What did he say to the Pharisees who were not believing in him? He said, my word finds no place in you. Why is that? Because you are not of my sheep. Jesus gave us a fullness of truth 
about God the Father. And when that truth grips the soul, souls of men and women, even in our own day, we find ourselves able to confess with John, John, you saw his glory, and we see his glory too. Now, there's not only a fullness of truth that the Son of God brought to us, but there was also, as it says in John 1.14, a fullness of grace. Now, just a side note. This is an interesting pairing, isn't it? Truth and grace. How often do people trying to take a bold stance for the truth do so without much grace? Or on the flip side, how often are people seeking to show grace at the expense of truth? Right? That's, that's how our world understands love and compassion and grace. It's not about telling them the truth. It's about capitulating and bowing down to their desires, right? what they want. If you don't let me do what I want, then you don't love me. Well, that's childish, right? And that's what we were supposed to be reared out of by our parents. I guess there's some failures generationally there. But in Jesus Christ, these two things come together and blend perfectly. We never find Jesus talking to us about the truth in a manner that is also with, or in a manner that is without grace. And we never find Jesus extending grace that is somehow separated from a declaration of what's true. So just as a side note there. Now, what does John mean when he talks about a fullness of grace? What is he talking about? Well, I think he explains that in verse 16 of John chapter 1 when he says, For of his fullness, right? Here we are again with that same word from 114. Of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. It seems to me that John is describing what he means in verse 14 as a fullness of grace in verse 16, as describing it as grace upon grace. You could translate this phrase as grace given instead of grace or grace in place of grace. But what it's picturing is simply the lavish provision of one measure of grace followed by another. One preacher I listened to this past week describe it as the waves of the ocean. It's like the waves of the ocean and you're standing on the shore. When one, ra- one wave reaches the shore, you can look up and see that there's another wave right behind it getting ready to come to the same spot. And you can lift your eyes and you can look out into the ocean as far as your eyes can see, and all you will ever see is one wave after another after another making their way towards you on the shore. Well, that is the kind of grace, the fullness of grace that Jesus Christ brought to this world. He brought a grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace for sinners like us. I think there's also another explanation of this in verse 17. When Jesus, or when John says that this fullness of grace... um, was realized through Jesus Christ. He describes it in verse 17 as, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now some think that in verse 17, John is contrasting the ideas of law and grace, pitting them against each other. Like we had law through Moses, but we got grace now through Jesus Christ. 
Well, clearly in the context, that's not what John is saying. Verse 17 is not drawing a contrast between law and grace. It is explaining what it means for Christ to give grace in place of grace. Follow me here if you don't understand that. Because of a widespread influence of poor teaching on the relationship between the law and grace, a lot of Christians today do not understand that the giving of God's law through Moses was an expression of His grace. It served to shine the light of God on our fallen condition. It served to illuminate, in that sense, our darkness and to help us understand what sin is. It helped us understand the nature of God's character and it helped us conceptualize what it means to have fallen short of His glory. It helped clarify what it means to be holy as He is holy and how to live a life that is pleasing to God. All of those were blessings and graces that were dumped upon us through the law. Even Paul says in, in, in Romans 7.12 that even for a believer in Christ, the law is still not evil. It is holy and it is righteous and it is good. Now, if you agree with that, but you still don't see the Mosaic law as an expression of God's grace, then think of it this way. God could have left us in the dark without giving any of this light provided in the law. He could have left us to our self-inflicted blindness. He could have left us with only the marred remnants of His law written upon our hearts. Undiscernible, blotted out by the darkness of our sin, leaving us unable to discern exactly what God's law is and how to live that life holy and pleasing to Him. He could have left us in our ruined state in sin in order to figure things out for ourselves. But He didn't do that. He loved us more than that. He wrote His law on tablets of stone that could be objectively known. Not subjectively known. Not leaving us to our own senses and impressions about what's pleasing to God and what's not pleasing to Him. But actually codifying it. Bringing it down to our level and writing it Himself so that we would know exactly what He expects from us. That's grace. And then there's grace upon grace even in the law. He not only gave us the Ten Commandments to make us objectively know what His expectations are, but then He gave fuller explanations of how those laws are to be applied in various life circumstances through the rest of the writings of Moses. All in order to teach us and to train us in the ways of God, helping us understand what it looks like to be His image bearers. That is how the law of God has brought grace to us as human beings. Now let me ask the question, what have we done with the grace of God that was revealed to us in His law? Well, we definitely haven't lived up to it. We have squandered it. We have wasted it. We have refused to understand and submit to it. The Jews twisted that grace of God's law into a relationship of works, a kind of quid pro quo relationship with God. We'll do this, you do that, it'll all work out. 
That was a perversion of the grace of the law that God gave to them. The Gentiles refused to see the wisdom of God's law and refused to submit to the light of our own conscience and the work of the law as it's already written in our hearts. We've refused to accept the light of God's glory shining in the law, and we have outright rejected the command of God to submit to it. Now, just think about all the ways that we have broken the law of God. Both collectively and individually. Humanity has done gruesome and shamefully evil things, so much so that we don't even like to talk about them. We don't like to talk about trafficking. We don't like to talk about the, the real depths of drug abuse and the effects of that that it has upon people. We don't like to talk about things like that. Rape, molestation, even our own personal things. We, don't like, we've, we have personally broken God's law in ways that we would be ashamed to even share with each other. As redeemed sinners, as those who were just like one another before grace came into our lives, we're still ashamed to share things that we've done against God's law with each other. There's no end to the depths of our depravity or the ways in which we have sinned against the grace of the law. Now, in light of such abuses and neglect of the prior grace of God's law, what would we expect the next thing to be that we would receive from the hand of God. What would we expect that to be other than his anger, his vengeance, his retribution for having sinned so high-handedly against such grace? At the very least, with our own sense of justice, we would expect the withdrawal of grace from us, right? Isn't that how we are tempted to act whenever we've been wronged by someone? When someone has sinned against our love, when someone has sinned against our friendship, or someone has sinned against our trust, the last thing that we want to do is extend more grace to a person like that. Instead, we would rather withdraw from that person, right? Take back that which is ours, that which was given, pull back, separate ourselves from that person. The last thing that we would expect God to do for us who have sinned against his former grace is to approach us with the blessing of more grace. And yet, beloved, that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He has sent his only begotten son to give grace to us in place of grace, to give a fullness of grace in place of the grace that we've sinned against. Do you see that? In fact, this is where we see the most glorious part of God's grace revealed in the law of Moses. And I want you to listen to me here. We're almost done, all right? I don't want any amens to that, but listen to me. (laughs) The greatest grace of the law given through Moses is that it was revealed in order to lead us to another greater grace. This is Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us where? To lead us to Christ. 
to lead us out of ourselves, to lead us away from our own efforts, to lead us away from any concept that we have in our fallen, depraved minds that we can somehow do what is pleasing in the eyes of God on our own. We can't do that. And the law was revealed to show us that truth and to drive us away from any thought of that and drive us to Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation and grace and redemption and forgiveness and cleansing from sin. What we could not do through the law of ourselves, weak as it was through the flesh, God has done by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And He did that so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the glory of the gospel in relation to the law. The law's greatest glory was that it was, it was laid down to pave the way to Jesus Christ. The grace of the law was never enough to save us, but it was enough to drive us to the place where greater grace can be found, driving us away from ourselves and our own efforts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this this is where the fullness of grace given in Christ supersedes the grace that God gave us in His law. Just think about it. The law tallies our sins that we have committed against God. Every way that we have failed to live up to His law, the law takes account. But in the Gospel, Christ obliterates that record of debt on the cross. Colossians 2.14. The law demands God's wrath against us for breaking it. The gospel gives fullness of grace by absorbing the fullness of wrath demanded by the law in the person of Jesus Christ. The law exposes our sin and shames us for it. The, the grace of the gospel in the blood of Jesus Christ our sins are eternally covered. He wipes them out like a cloud. He buries them in the deepest part of the sea. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. This is the fullness of grace that was given to us in Jesus Christ. You remember what John Bunyan said of the law and the gospel? You may remember this. John Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. It's, it's calling me to do something, but it doesn't give me anything so that I'm able to do it. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Sweeter things the Gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Right. See, the Gospel not only gives us the high command to fly in the righteousness and truth of God, but it gives us the wings that enable us to do so. Romans 5, 20-21 really lays this out perfectly. And I don't, I don't want to go through this fully, but just let me read it. Maybe make a couple comments. Romans 5, 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. In other words, the law, as, a, as gracious a gift as it was, was added in order to increase transgression. That is, it was added in order to make us increasingly aware of just how infected we really are with sin. To show us all the ways that the transgression of Adam has infected even us. 
But you notice that it was not added for the sake of merely helping us understand our sin or increasing transgression. It was added so that in every place where sin increased, grace would abound all the more. Right? Even to the greatest effect of sin, which is death. Verse 21 tells us, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, we live in a time when God's grace reigns through our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what sin we have committed. There is a fullness of grace that is extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that we cannot get anywhere else. You cannot outsin the abundance of God's grace in Christ. Do you know that? Oh, we act like it though, don't we? We've stumbled into the same sin. We've clicked on that same website that we swore we would never return to again. We've had that lustful thought. We've been rebellious in our hearts all over again. We have not loved our brothers and our sisters in Christ the way we ought. We have not shepherded our wives or our families the way we should. We have not submitted to our husbands as the Lord calls us. We have not walked in the fullness of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What should we expect when we turn back to God and we tell Him how we failed? So often we live as though we should expect an angry father standing there with a belt just ready to wail on us because we have, man, you just messed up again. Guys, the glory of the gospel is that when we turn back to our heavenly father in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a fullness of grace, a super abounding amount of grace that he is willing and ready to dump out upon us. See, our problem is not that we don't know that. Our problem is we don't really believe it. The call of the Holy Spirit from this passage is simple. In the words of 2 Corinthians 6.1, I am working together with Him in order to urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How would you receive it in vain? Well, by not resting in it. How would you receive the grace of God in vain? By not resting in it. You don't have to work your way up to earn God's grace. You don't have to climb a ladder in order to take hold of it. You simply have to fall into the hands of grace. How would you receive it in vain? By not trusting in it. When the moment comes and temptation's knocking on your door, or even when you give in to that temptation, the greatest way for you to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ in your sin is by not believing that His grace is greater than your sin. You hear that? The greatest way for you to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ in your sin is by believing that His grace is not greater than your sin. How do you not receive it in vain? Or how would you receive it in vain? By not believing in it and by not entering into this grace that Christ has given us. May God grant us all the grace that we need to come to Him and see and receive the fullness of grace and truth that is granted to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, there is a fullness, there is an abundance of grace that You have provided for us in Your Son. And I pray, Lord, as we look to Your only begotten Son, please help us run the race set before us with joy and with liveliness in the reality of Your grace that You've given us in Him. Lord, let us see the freedom that You've brought to us in Him. Freedom from the demands of the law in the sense of earning our way with You. And, and absolute liberty to walk in freedom with You. To live with You in righteousness and holiness. To serve You without fear all our days. Lord, as we get ready to come to the table, I pray that You would work in our hearts the reality of grace and truth. And help us come to this table rejoicing and worshiping You as the God of grace who has made Yourself known to us fully in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen.